just going to read something from Mark, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll just jump in. This comes from Mark uh, 14, verse 43. So no sooner were the words out of his mouth when Judas, the one of the twelve, showed up, and with him a, a gang of ruffians sent by the high priest, religion scholars and leaders, brandishing swords and clubs, the betrayer had worked out a signal with them. The one I kiss is the one. Seize him. Make sure he doesn't get away. He went straight to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The others then grabbed him and roughed him up. One of the men standing there unsheathed his sword, swung, and came down on the chief priest's servant, lopping off the man's ear. Jesus said to them, What's this? Coming after me with swords and clubs as if I were a dangerous criminal? Day after day I've been sitting in the temple teaching, and you never so much as lifted a hand against me. What you in fact have done is confirm the prophetic writings. All of the disciples cut and ran. This is a kind of, we're going to take a little bit of a detour. We're going to leave a little, we're going to leave Mark, and we're going to detour a little bit. Uh, As we kind of come into VBS, uh, I keep wanting to say SummerSlam, that's what I used to call it. Our, Our VBS camp is about the story of Joseph. Um, and kind of his dreams and his kind of his story arc, and it's a really, really great story. Uh, and I, I love the story of Joseph. And I wanted to start here because I think actually this story that I've just shared, this, this small passage of Mark, really lines up with the story of Joseph. So as we kind of talk about Joseph and get into the story of Joseph, just try to, to see the biblical parallels between Jesus and Joseph. That's a hint. But before I do that, who did any driving this summer? Who drove anywhere? Yeah. Yeah, of course. We like to, to drive this summer. Even with high gas prices, it's like people are everywhere driving. So as we detour, I wanted to tell you a little bit of a detouring story, if you would indulge me. Uh, yeah, I've had some times away at camp. I did, I did Camp Mishua. I spoke at Camp Mishua for a couple weeks. And then uh, about early August, we, Faith and I were invited to do this kind of beach project, adult, uh, young adult discipleship thing that we were asked to kind of speak at. So we went down to Port Dover and, and did that. And um, it was really, really fun. And we got to know these, these young adults from kind of all over uh, Ontario and um, Pennsylvania. And it was really, really great. And it's very, very humid down there. I, I grew up in that area and I forgot how humid it was. But we had this plan. My sister has this, like... Uh, it's more of a compound than a cottage. It's like this beautiful, big, sprawling cottage on the Northumberland Strait in New Brunswick, looking at Prince Edward Island. And she invited all of us, our siblings, to come out to celebrate my dad's birthday at her cottage. I have six other siblings I'm from a big family. And I've got siblings in British Columbia. I've got siblings in Northern Ontario. Five of the seven made this journey. Um, and so we were going to meet up with my parents in caravan together to New Brunswick. And so we, we got up early. Now I've got three, three young kids, which is always fun and when you're traveling with them. And we've got one car with five seats. So do the math. All the seats are filled. Okay, there's, no one, there's, no, there's no room in the car to move around. So we got up at 5 o'clock in the morning in Port Dover to meet my parents for 5.15, to beat Toronto traffic on Friday morning before the weekend, 
uh, to, to get across Toronto to make our way to Le Chemogui in New Brunswick. Okay? You following? Three kids. Okay? Get out of Simcoe, which is my, my hometown where I grew up. Torrential rain. Like, I can't see the road. I, if my dad wasn't in front of me, I don't know where the road was. It was really scary. I thought I was going to fly off the road. It's like the first 15 minutes of trip, dumpsters. Awful. Whatever, the rain passes and we drive through and we do it, we make it. We drive through Toronto, we get through this 401 traffic and we're on the other side of Toronto and we're feeling good. It's like 8.30 in the morning, we stop at an en route. Who's ever been to the en routes? They're brilliant, right? They're great, smart. That smart infrastructure, we stop there, we get a coffee, keep going, life-saving. Not to my dad. He's like, what is it taking so long to get this stupid coffee? Anyway, keep going. Now we're on the other side of Belleville. We're making good time. Now my dad is like pedal to the metal, throttle. I'm gonna like, he will go 20 hours in a day if he can. Three kids, okay? I've got three kids. So we're driving on the 401 on the other side of Belleville and I'm just toddling along at a good clip. Traffic's great and all of a sudden we see a car driving in our shoulder going in the opposite direction. Okay, so I've heard this once happening before in Vancouver. I used to live out there. There's these, like, uh, the they don't have a lot of highways, so they alternate to the roads. And you're coming into the city, it's a green light. When you're coming out of the city, it's a red light, right? So to control traffic, and one time a lady went in the wrong direction into oncoming traffic, and I thought that's what was happening. Someone has, like, lost their mind, they're confused, they're delirious, and they're driving into oncoming traffic. But there was another one that followed, and then another one. And then another one. And then someone was reversing on the shoulder. Now, I'm getting a little confused. I don't know what's going on. My dad doesn't know what's going on. We all start slowing down. We look up ahead. Here's a giant transport truck and trailer jackknifing on the road to back up to do the same thing. So we're like, let's just follow suit. So we turn our vehicle and drive on the shoulder going in the opposite direction on Canada's busy, busiest highway, okay? This is, you still with me? We have no idea what's happening. This is exciting. We're all like, what's happening? Well, then we see a, 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 a police cruiser, an SUV, whoosh, screech on the 401 to block it. He gets out, we're about 20 cars from the off-ramp. He gets out and he starts flagging the car that's just about to go on the off-ramp. And we can't hear him, obviously, but he's like very dramatic and he's like and so that car turns around, this car turns around, this car turns around, we all start turning around, and we keep driving, and then we see, oh, there's the 10 kilometer dead stop traffic line of cars that all these other cars were trying to avoid. There was an accident on the 401 at three in the morning with a gas, a gas truck that had burned up the road no one really told us that it was there. We had no idea that it was going to be there. And so it is now about 10 o'clock in the morning, beating sun, three kids, five seats, full, full tiny little car. We spend the next four hours. Everyone's diaper is full. Everyone's diaper is full. Actually, there's a story about that. We're inching along, literally, at such a slow pace. The face like, why don't you get out and walk? So I did. I walked the 401 
And I walked up and I, I found my dad who was not happy. And I saw some other just, just weary, tired faces. I actually got to know some people. There's a bachelor uh, SUV, they're having a bachelor party in Montreal. There's another person from Quebec who actually did use the washroom on the side of the, side of the road. People were like sharing drinks and it was like this really weird experience on Canada's busiest highway. That wasn't the end of this story. When we finally got to the exit, which, seemed, which took four hours to inch 10 kilometers, then we got the detour. Well, now at this point, every single car that was stopped and every single car that had been diverted on Friday at noon, all of us were taking this detour. And so it took another hour and a half to get back onto the highway. So basically, the plan that my dad had to beeline it to the Chemogui in New Brunswick in the tubes. Our plan is to stay at Quebec City in the tubes. We, we, we bolted and ended up stopping at a roadside, uh, past Quebec City at a roadside stop, which has a bathroom and I think an outdoor water thing at 12 o'clock at night and slept in our car. Five kids <laughs> slept, slept in our car, our sedan, with, the, with our five kids. So I, I, here's what's really interesting about this story. This is not the first time this has happened to us. So three years ago, we did this in our Jeep with our five kids and our newborn baby. <laughs> this time, I knew it was going to happen. So my, my eldest daughter struggles the most in these scenarios. So I let her sleep in my seat. And I slept in her seat, <laughs> sitting up with Judah sleeping upright. And at one point, I thought I was dreaming, but I wasn't. Faith actually crawled into Mercy's car seat. And this was our beautiful roadside sleeping detour experience. Who's ever had experience like that before? <laughs> yes? All right. We're not the only ones. All to say, life can give you some really nasty detours. Things that you just don't expect. You could have never, ever expected. I would have never thought the 401's going to close. I thought we were doing great. We were doing great. I, like, I'm not a very administrative person, if you hadn't known. Getting up that early, getting that organized, having all of us kind of on board to do this is a really tremendous feat. And it was just flushed down the toilet with this really big, dramatic, unexpected detour. And when we come to the biblical narrative, when we come to the story of the scriptures, we come to the story of Joseph, the story of Joseph is a side-swiping detour. It's not expected. It's not in the cards. It's not supposed to happen. And actually, if you look at Joseph, you can look at the entire Bible, the entire narrative of the scriptures, and see actually a lot of these things weren't supposed to happen. They weren't intended to happen. It wasn't part of the plan. If you go all the way back to Genesis, where this story of Joseph actually begins, you see that before there's anything, God was. And God breathed creation into existence with just his words. And he crafted the universe with just his words, with just his breath. 
And when he narrowed in on earth and he, and he sculpted and made earth and he kind of formed people out of, the, out of the ground and he breathed his life into them and he made them image bearers, something beautiful happened. They became kind of self-agent, self-recreating beings. God gave them will. He gave them purpose. And he set them in this beautiful place perfect garden and we know the story they had one rule just don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil yet don't yet eat from it all the rest is yours dominion over this whole garden is yours Adam and Eve living in the unison walking in communion with God in this beautiful created world that God had made but the serpent slithers in tricks Eve, tricks Adam. Now there's sin that's broken into this thing, hubris, mistrust in God's goodness, mistrust in God, his love. And so the communion is shattered, it's broken. And the, and the sin that befells the world brings death. And the world, that beautiful garden starts to rot. It starts to wilt. This, this beautiful thing that God had made was no longer what it was fulfilled out to be. It was, there was a detour. Something had changed. So God makes the promise. One day I'm going to send the, the, my heel will crush the head of the serpent. One day. One day this will all be made right. But people just kind of kept detouring from what they were supposed to do. From the thing that God was asking them to do. From the people they were meant to be. And we know the story. And if you don't, you can read through Genesis of of all the ways of the sin that comes in, and it gets so bad that God has to restart with the flood and with Noah. And then after that, you'd think people would have learned, but they, they don't. They build this giant tower that as if they could touch the heavens. And God comes down and he says, no, you can't do that. And he strikes their tongues and spreads them across the world. And this tower becomes known as the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, the Tower of Gibberish, because people can't understand each other. And then these people spread across the world and they just basically spread violence. And they spread a distortion of this created order and this, this created world. And it really seems like the, the earth God that created has really started to take a far, far turn from where it was meant to be. And then so one day, God says, he comes down to this man in this, kind of this gentle whisper. The man's name's Abram. And God whispers in his heart and his mind, he says, Come, follow me. Come. He calls Abram out of this world, out of, this, out of his culture, out of his context. And Abram takes a leap of faith. And the story of Abraham is long and it's, it's, it's very nuanced and brilliant. But over that time, through that interaction, as Abram takes these steps forward, God meets him and makes a series of promises to him. But the most important, I think, is God says to Abram, I, one day, I'm going to give you a nation. You will be the father of a nation. And this, this nation that I will give you will bless the world. Through your people, God will be known. I will be known. I will make things right. And whenever I think of this story, I think of, this, of a star. So if you, like, you want to do this, if, if you were a bunch of kids, I'd say, you know, put the star over your head. You can do that with me now. 
this promise that God's given, this is a really important promise, this kind of star that God gave Abram, this promise to make him a father of nations of blessing, was really, really important. Because at this time, it's really easy for us to go into this long series of books with this long, big historical record and thousands of years of tradition. Abram had nothing. He had nothing. He had no scrolls. He had no Pentateuch. He had no tablets. He had no church. He had no priest, no pastor, no tradition to lean on. He, his, his, his walk was really one of faith in a world dominated by a multiplicity of gods and other voices. Abram was literally walking in almost pure faith day by day by day. And God kept meeting him. But he got really old, and the promise hadn't been kept. He had no children. How can I be a, a, a father of nations when I don't even have kids myself? And in a very, very, very old age, he finally has a son, Isaac. And then that story leads to Isaac having two sons, Esau and Jacob. And as this, in this ancient world, there's this kind of star, this promise that God had given Abram was now passing on generationally. The star passes to Isaac. You could try this. Take the star and pass it to your neighbor. No, the same neighbor can't have the same one. So you can't share with, you can't have two. Let's try again. Pass it over to the next person. Isaac gets the promise. Pass it over to the next person. To Esau. Wait. Esau doesn't want it. Esau doesn't care. It's his right. It's his birthright. He's not really interested. So Jacob, that crafty story, that kind of like these brilliant biblical tales, like Jacob tricks and deceives his father Isaac in, in taking that blessing and taking that promise onto himself. And he snatches it from Esau. And then Jacob has this really long history that's laid out in Genesis, like wrestling with God and wrestling with himself and wrestling with his father-in-law and fighting his way through life until he gets old. And he has a bunch of children. Now this is interesting, I think. In Genesis 35, they left Bethel. They were still quite a ways from uh, Ephrath when Rachel went into labor. That's Jacob's favorite wife, remember. Hard, hard labor. When her labor pains were at their worst, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid. You have another boy. With her last breath, for now she was dying, she named him Ben-Anoi, son of my pain. But his father, Jacob, named him Ben-Jamin, son of good fortune. Rachel died and was buried on the road from Ephrath, and that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar to mark her grave, and it is still there today, Rachel's gravestone. So Jacob has these, these sons. And by this point, Benjamin is his 12th son. Born to his favorite wife who dies in childbirth. Who names her, her, her son with her dying breath, the son of my pain. And Jacob switches it around and says, no, I'll actually call you son of my good fortune because I'm an old man. And now I have a final son. How many sons does Jacob have? 
12. 12 sons. Does that, does that number sound familiar to you? Does that ring? How many sons do you have? 12. Interesting. There are 12 sons of Jacob. The, the sons by Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun. The sons by Rachel, Joseph, Benjamin. The sons by Bila, Rachel's maid, Dan, Naphtali. The sons by Zilpha, Leah's maid, Gad, Asher. These were Jacob's sons born to him. And as the story of Jacob continues, he's got he, this, this blessing now. If you were to look back, if Abram was still alive, you'd say, oh, I can see where God's going with this. One promise, one son, multiplied into two, now multiplied into a tribe. We now have a father passing on to a son generationally, and now we have 12 sons with all of their wives and all of their children. Ah, Abram would say, I start to see this plan unfolding. Rachel dies. That's very sad. Jacob's grieving. Now, I'm not sure why Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, but he is. And as Jacob, as Joseph is brought up, I can infer that maybe Jacob isn't super keen on Benjamin because Benjamin was maybe part of the death of his favorite wife. So Joseph becomes the favorite. And by 17 years old, he was so favored by Jacob. It was clear, he was clear and above the favorite son that, J that Jacob had. He was educated, he was smart, he was very confident. And in, and in this time, remember, this is not the way it's supposed to go. The eldest is supposed to be the favored son. The eldest is supposed to be the one who inherits. Reuben would be the one who gets the blessing, he would get the family farm, he would be in charge. Why is it that Joseph is the favorite? Well, to make matters worse, Jacob actually has a coat, a beautiful coat, made of beautiful, rich colors, and he bestows it to his favorite son, Jacob, or Joseph. And the sons, the other 11, maybe minus Benjamin, hate him. Hate him. They hate him. And they plot to kill him. Had Joseph done anything wrong yet? No. This plan that God had set out, this tribe, this number 12, that's quite significant later on. We can see it as it's fulfilled in the New Testament. We can see it kind of building here. It's really important. And yet there's this brooding hatred among the brothers. Well, Joseph doesn't help himself. One day he wakes up. Probably in their, their big tent, probably, tent, probably the size of this room, these nomadic people. Jacob was very wealthy. He had a lot of sheep, a lot of animals, a big family, probably a big tent, just like this one. And he wakes up and comes out of his chambers and says, I had a dream. Oh, here we go, the brothers say. At this point, they don't even talk to him. They hate him so much, they don't want to look at him, barely tolerate him. Joseph says, I had a dream that we were all thrashing wheat. All of us, all of us brothers thrashing wheat together. And then all of a sudden, 
My, my grain stock grew up over all the rest of us. And then you all started bowing down to my grain stock. Who has brothers? Who's competitive? My family is very competitive. Our newest uh, addition to the family, he's my, my youngest brother-in-law, he's like just a baby. He's like 26. Drives me crazy. He is super competitive, and he fits really well into our family. But the problem is he's really good. He's really athletic, and he wins at a lot of stuff. And that's not okay when you want to compete with someone and you lose. So that's not okay. So I, I get some of this, like, ah. And the brothers say, oh, you think we're going to bow down to you? Remember, Reuben is the eldest. If Reuben dies, then it's next in line, next in line. You're the bottom of this barrel, buddy. You don't have a hope that we're ever going to bow down to you. And that hatred inside of them just gurgling up, boiling. Some days pass. Happens again. Joseph comes out of his bedchambers. He says, you guys, what? I had another dream. Here we go, say the brothers. Let's say that together in your most disdainful voice that you can. On the count of three, let's say, here we go. One, two, three. Here we go. That's good. Let's add a little bit more hatred. One, two, three. Here we go. Here we go. Let's, let's hear it, Joseph. Oh, this time. Now Joseph is arrogant, naive, a little dumb, doesn't see what he's kind of walking into. This time, the sun and the moon and all of you are bowing down to me. The brothers are mad, They're, of course, seething with hatred. The second time you've had a dream where we, you're, we are bowing down to you. But this time, Jacob says, wait a second. Wait, buddy. Like, I'm, me and your mothers, we're all now bowing to you? Jacob is the patriarch. Jacob is the father. Jacob is the one who owns the land and owns the family and the, who the blessing is sitting on. This is a very haughty thing for Joseph to say. And now he's ticked off his brothers and he's ticked off his father. But the writer of Genesis tells us that Jacob, as his brothers leave in anger, Jacob actually sits kind of brooding about this. There's something going on here. Jacob would recognize that God is at work somehow but he can't quite get past his feelings he can't quite see what's in front of him and so one day he sends joseph out to spy on his brothers they do shoddy work they're lazy they don't do as they're told and so he sends out his favorite son adorned with his beautiful coat to take a look at what his brothers are doing and by the time joseph gets there his brothers have plotted to kill him. Now this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, like, like beat him up stuff, like let's rough him up, let's show him who's boss, let's, let's throw his car keys away or like smash his phone. This is murder. They want to kill their brother. The, foam, the formation in the mouth, the anger in their heart, they're so 
angry. And this, this hatred had been brewing for so long, they're about to kill their brother. He's far away enough from his, from his dad. They start to plot. They say, you know, we, if we, if we did this and we, we did that, then, then maybe we could do this. And this is where you see some of the tension kind of breaking, breaking into this story. So they spot him off in the distance. And by then, they got to him. They cooked up a plot to kill him. The brothers were saying, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of those old cisterns. We can say that a vicious animal ate him up. We'll see what his dreams amount to. So they had this plot. They're going to kill him first. Then chuck him into the cistern. Take back the coat. Make up a story. They'd all kind of share this story, and it'd be over. Joseph's dreams are done. Reuben, the eldest, heard the brothers talking and intervened to save him. We're not going to kill him. No murder. But go ahead and throw him into the cistern out here in the wild, but don't hurt him. Reuben planned to go back later and get him out and take him back to his father. It's interesting what's going on there with the eldest brother. But when Joseph reached his brothers, they grabbed him. Eleven boys, probably ten boys, Benjamin's probably not there. The ten brothers, they grab him. They rip off his coat. I can't imagine this is easy or fun or without pain. They grabbed him and threw him into a cistern, a deep well, an empty well. It was dry and there wasn't any water in it. So he didn't have the benefit of landing in a splash of water. He's chucked into an old cistern. Who knows what's down there, how the rocks had fallen in. He's thrown in. He drops in. He's hurt. Then they sat down to eat their supper. Looking up, they saw the Ishmaelites on their way from Gilead, their camels loaded with spices, ointments, and perfumes to sell in Egypt. Judah, one of the older brothers, said, what are we going to get out of killing our brother? And concealing the evidence, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not kill him. He is, after all, our brother, our very own flesh and blood. So they're making some amendments to their plan. Maybe the, the hatred, they've gotten some of their violence out. They can kind of let it go a little bit. Let's actually profit off of our brother. And so by that time, the Midianite traders are passing by, and his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph down with them to Egypt. Then they had this problem. Joseph is now, they can see him kind of being carried off, sold into slavery, into a life of subjugation and slavery. Who knows where he's going to go? He's probably as good as dead. This doesn't really relieve the idea that they've murdered him. They've, they've basically sent him for death, as far as they know. They take his coat that they've already ripped up and tattered up, and they find an animal's blood, and they start smearing the blood all over, the, uh, over this coat. And then they walk back mournfully to their father, and they present their coat, his coat, back to Jacob, who now knows that his son is dead. And the grief that overwhelms him just washes over him that his favorite son is gone. His favorite wife is gone. 
And all that he has left from his favorite wife and his favorite son is his brother Benjamin, the son of my good fortune. Now this story starts to take a wild, wild detour into Egypt with Pharaoh and more jail time and more dreams. But we don't know any of that yet. If we were to stop right here, if we were to be in Jacob's shoes and we would say, what is going on? Where do dreams go when they die? Where do dreams go when they die? Jacob's dreams were dead. The, the, the dream that he had for his son, for his family, was dead. It seemed like that promise that God had given was now in really deep peril. How can you have a, a nation, a tribe, if, if the sons get picked off and they're, they're ravenously violent towards each other? Where's, where's God in this story? What's going to happen next? This grief that Jacob would have carried from and this pressure that Jacob would have carried from, and this expectation he would have carried from, from Isaac and Abram, and this identity that was forming, was almost too much for him to bear. Where do dreams go when they die? Here is the beautiful thing about this story, about the parallels between these stories of Joseph and Jesus, violent mobs, bags of silver, being sold out, wrongfully accused, hatred and jealousy, and seemingly death, is that God's dreams don't die. God's dreams can't be put to death. When God sows a dream, when he weaves a dream into the fabric of a mind or heart or a soul or a family or a congregation, he doesn't let them die. God's dreams don't die. They may veer hard left, hard right. You may be on a five and a half hour detour that you did not expect. You may spend a night in a car that you never thought you would again. But God doesn't let his dreams die. In the book of Mark, the disciples cut and run. Three years of Jesus, three years following him, three years watching him, hearing him, seeing him raise the dead, feed the multitudes, walk across water and calm the storms. The moment there's trouble, they cut and run. The dream that they had, it's over, it's done. From a distance, they watched their Messiah hang from a cross. They watched the lifeblood drain out of him, and it's over in their mind. Joseph, thrown into a well, sold off to slavery. They can see that, that young man be carried off to a far and distant land, and it's, it's over, it's done. And Jacob sends himself into a pit of grief and despair because it's over. But God's dreams don't die. 
So my, my encouragement for you this morning is we kind of come into this series of stories of this really wonderful story of Joseph. You're going to find out what happens next, next week. But if you have a dream, if you feel like you've been given a dream, maybe a dream that you were given a long, long time ago, it's one of those like whisper dreams that you had in the middle of the night or given to you at camp when you were a kid. And it seems impossible. And it seems like it's never going to come to fruition. And it seems like maybe your days are ending and it still hasn't come about. If it's a dream from God, his dreams don't die. They may not take the course that we think they should take. They may not be in the time that we think they should be in. They may not be with the people that we think we should be around. They may not be in the way that we think it should happen. But if the scriptures are any indicator, is when God gives a dream, he sees it through. No matter how we interfere with it, no matter how others interfere with it, God doesn't let his dreams die. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that when you were taken that morning and carried off to the high priest and, and, and beaten and chained and mocked and sent to death, that your, your dream, your promise to bless the world through you didn't die. That in fact, you can't be killed. And three days later, you burst out of the tomb, conquering death, conquering the grave, and bringing all things right back to the garden state where we can live and walk in communion with you. We thank you that the promise that you gave way, way back at the beginning that you'd crush the head of the serpent, that you'd overcome, that you would redeem and set right, that you followed it through. We thank you that the promise you gave Abram that this, this nation would be born, that through his people the world would be known that you followed it through. We thank you that with the promises that you gave Joseph, the dreams you gave Joseph, that the long, long detours that took for him, his brothers, his dad, and himself, that you followed it through. And Jesus, I pray now that the dreams that we've been given, the dreams that you've, you've spoken into our hearts, that we'd be dutiful, that we'd be courageous, that we would follow our ancestors of the faith and walk in faith to see your dreams come to fruition. May we have patience. May we have courage. May we have hope. I thank you for all those who are gathered here online, in person. I pray for all of their dreams. I pray you'd even speak now and seed new dreams into the life of this congregation. In your name, amen.